I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, psychologist Dacher Keltner shares just how big an impact awe has on our lives. Young children in an art museum, when they're awestruck, become kinder to the people around them. If we live in a part of the world where there's beautiful nature spaces, we become kinder through awe, right? So awe is this pathway to decency and to prosociality or kindness. And later, a painful journey of loss and grief and how awe led to a greater acceptance. There was one moment where I felt my brother's hand on my back and I was like, wow, you know, I feel that physically. He's here. And of course, he's not here physically, but he is here psychologically, spiritually. So I hope grief is a human universal. The panic you feel of that immediacy of losing a single person is very real. But there is this opening to new understanding. The miracle and mystery of awe on our bodies and souls, coming up on Life Examined. When it comes to human emotion, awe is probably not the first one that comes to mind. Maybe it's something more like love or sadness, anger or hate. But it turns out that awe, that feeling you get when you see something truly amazing, beyond words, vast, is actually really good for us. It calms us down, relaxes the nervous system, and helps us to heal from trauma and grief. As it turns out, you don't need to look far to find awe. Awe can be experienced just as much in daily life as it can at the top of a mountain or peering up at the ceiling in St. Peter's Cathedral. It's around us in nature, art, music, and spirituality. In his latest book called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life, author Dacher Keltner points to the most significant inspiration of awe, that found in moral beauty, those simple acts of kindness that we see around us every day that bind us collectively to each other. Keltner is a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, where he's also the director of the Greater Good Science Center. Well, Dacher Keltner, it's great to have you back on Life Examined. Welcome. It's so good to be with you again, Jonathan. This turns out to just kind of be one of my favorite topics because <laughs> it, it makes me happy and it brings me joy and it makes me, it kind of breaks me out of, you know, whatever small mindset I have most days. And so um, let's just kind of start with, with a little bit of your background with awe. I, I've always been interested in your work that you tackle these kind of immemorial themes, but, but why, yeah. why did awe seem like an important one for you? Well, part of it was that I uh, was raised, I had a real childhood of wonder and awe. I was raised by an artist and a literature professor during a very awe-inspiring time of the late 60s in Laurel Canyon. And so yeah. I think that was a period of, of our history where, and my personal history of of really just wondering and, and embracing mystery. Um, I think personally, Jonathan, throughout my life, I've was a high-strung person, and I started to realize that these bursts of awe, uh, you know, through different means, really transformed me and uh, really brought me all kinds of meaning in life. And then scientifically, um, it was a mystery. You know, people just hadn't studied it. They didn't think it could be studied in the lab. Uh, we didn't know how to measure it, you know, just the classic uh, tools that we need to apply to a phenomenon. And so... Uh, and then, you know, as you and I talked last time, uh, I had all these findings sort of starting to gel and I was understanding awe. And then my brother passed away mm. and blew me off my, the map and and it just started to pour out this book to figure out what the mysteries of life are and how awe points us in the direction to figure them out a bit. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I want to spend some time on grief and, and share stories yeah. in both directions here. But yeah. first, maybe we can seat some of this conversation and what we know now about the science of awe yeah. and the psychology of it. What, what did you find out when, when writing this book? Well, it, I, it, it really struck us, and we, we spent about 10 years, um, and now a, a lot of labs around the world are really studying awe with, with vigor. And, 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 you know, awe, the feeling of encountering vast mysteries that you don't understand... Um, we've learned, um, first and foremost, uh, that it, uh, how, where we find it. And we did a bunch of research in 26 different countries. And surprisingly, we find awe, uh, most reliably in encountering the moral beauty of other people mm. in collective effervescence in nature and then in music and visual design and spirituality. So, and other things like big ideas and, 
and the life and death cycle. But that first finding, moral beauty, the most reliable source of awe for us is just the wonders of other people. The other thing uh, we've learned is awe is surprisingly common. It's not, you know, rarefied or extraordinary. It's around the world. People feel it two to three times a week, you know, so it's kind of around us. We just have to open our eyes. And then finally, it's good for us. You know, it is it is good for your immune system. It's good for your vagus nerve, this big bundle of nerves. It helps you engage with others. It's good for your mind, mm. helps reduce stress. Um, so it's it's not, you know, 800 years ago, 1,000 years ago, awe was about dread and horror and, you know, existential <laughs> termination mm -hmm. and whatever it is. It, it's... Uh, it's much more around us and there to be cultivated than we might imagine. I love that because, yeah, the initial idea of awe is maybe you get a couple of those in a lifetime or in a year. But put some language then to how then you define awe now. What, what, what do we think of it as? Yeah, you know, awe is when we encounter things that are vast, that mm. are mysterious. Yeah. Uh, and once you start to contemplate that, you realize most things in life are vast and mysterious, you know, and you, you know, you walk through the streets and you think, wow, isn't it incredible how children learn language? That's vast and mysterious. Isn't it amazing the life death cycle of, of, you know, of uh, springs and falls, uh, these endless cycles, the, you know, the sun is mysterious, the, how we uh, form social patterns and build societies. There's so much that's vast and mysterious around us. So, this definition of it being this emotion about what is our embracing of vast mysteries suddenly opens the mind to how omnipresent they are uh, and engages us to try to figure things out. Hmm. I was really surprised when you said that oftentimes the place that we most frequently encounter awe is in the kindness or in the moral acts of another. It's funny, that just wouldn't come to me, right? Because I think most of us think of, oh, it's Niagara Falls, or it's, you know, it's the Taj Mahal. But say more about how it might actually be a person-to-person -person relationship or a noticing of another that really triggers that, that feeling of awe. Yeah, you know, you, you always, when we try to figure out complicated phenomena like awe, you always have to be skeptical or worried about your biases. And right, we often in the West think of awe as the Grand Canyon or yeah. space shot and et cetera. And, and we did what William James did, which is we gathered stories from all kinds of people. In fact, 2,600 stories from about 30 countries around the world. And what kept popping up is everyday moral beauty, kindness, courage, overcoming obstacles, mm -hmm. right? Uh, a mom in Ireland blown away that her daughter who was born with clubfoot condition could dance on stage. A son in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose dad called out a racist in a bar in 1973 when his son showed up with an African-American and, and the dad asked this patron to leave the bar who had used the N-word, right? Mm. Time and time again, in every part of the world, these stories from Brazil to China to India were all about us being astonished at the human capacity for kindness. You know, just like, I don't have any money, but I give you my last meal to yeah. an unhoused person. Uh, and that tells us, Jonathan, that that really we are this hypersocial species. What will be most moving to us and be our moral compass is the goodness of other people. Uh, and that helps us uh, through this emotion of awe and what it brings about, like cooperation, it helps us form strong societies. Mm -hmm. and, and awe is a glue uh, in that effort. You know, it's it's interesting. We recently had on the Dutch historian and writer, his name is uh, Rutger Bregman, and he wrote a book called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And essentially... I read it, yeah. Oh, okay. And, and you know, he was making the argument that the fundamental nature of humans is actually one, I think he uses the word like decent, you know, we're not like yeah. the greatest, but, but there's, there's a, there's a sense of kindness that's shared mostly among humans, which I think is hard to see in the world we live in, in the media environment, sure we live in, in journalism. And, yeah. and I, I get that, but I think I, I'm thinking about that interview. I'm thinking about what you're saying now and maybe part of the way that we share a sense of decency are through those moments of awe, and they're through the interconnection between 
uh, different people. You know, you just hit on the central animating hypothesis of a lot of this work. So, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and it took us years to get to that because, you know, awe has all these destabilizing qualities. Whoa, I don't know what to believe. I don't understand things. I'm humble. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the for humans to survive, and there's a ton of new data on this, and it's a really, a, as Bregman observes, a rethinking of who we are. You know, we share 40% of our resource with a stranger, 27 different countries in re empirical research. If we are asked to share quickly, we share more. We share more than half. Oh. Young children will share very instinctively with others. It is built into us. That's how we survived. And so what you need are animators and energizers of this kindness, this decency. And, and awe does that in many different ways, right? We see a, a there's a new study. We, we, young children in an art museum, when they're awestruck, become kinder to the people around them. Mm. If we live in a part of the world where there's beautiful nature spaces, we become kinder through awe, right? So awe is this pathway to decency. Uh, and to prosociality or kindness. Think about standing in the middle of a crowd at your favorite concert, right? Yeah. And yeah. could there ever be a place in which humans coexist so beautifully and so harmoniously when they are taking in beautiful music together? And that, I think it's a together is the important point here, right? There's something that happens that, that is kind of magical. And, you know, the, I mean, thanks for bringing that up. There's now this deep science that I review in this book about the, the awe felt with music. And what happens with music is we start moving our bodies to the same rhythm. Mm. Our brains start synchronizing in the same patterns of activation. Our heart rate starts syncing up when we listen to the music. We feel the boundaries between self and other dissolve in a, almost a cliched way. But you really feel like these are my people. And in fact, one of my favorite studies in this literature is young, I think it's 14-month-olds, um, if they bounce to a song with an adult in the same rhythm, they're more likely to help that adult out later, right? They become, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they become collaborators or they feel like they're part of a tribe. Uh -huh. um, and so music, by generating awe, has this really ma magical effect that... that you just described. Isn't that beautiful? And I, I bet you there's parents listening out there say, hey, that's why we have like cleanup songs or get on the bus songs or things. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah. get along songs. And get along and, songs. You know, and share your 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 lunch songs. And, <laughs> yeah. And it also makes you worried. Like when your teenager goes off to the type of music you're a little bit skeptical of, you worry uh -huh, right? because uh -huh. they're going to be folding into a tribe. You might be a little skeptical of. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, physiologically, what happens yeah. when we're in a moment of awe? Do we know anything about the body? Well, you know, it's this is why I love uh, the study of neuroscience and neurophysiology, which I do some in the lab. Um, and, you know, awe, mysterious as it is, people will routinely tell you, like, oh, I get these goosebumps and I feel different in my body. And, and there's a lot of remarkable science on the neurophysiology of awe from Japan to Holland to the U.S. to Brazil and others. And what we know is uh, it activates the vagus nerve, this large bundle of nerves that starts at the top of your spinal cord, wanders through your body, projects into your gut, uh, receiving a lot of information from the microbiome. And the vagus nerve helps you engage and be open. And when people feel warmth, in their chest with awe, that is the vagus nerve. The special goosebumps that awe activates are a special kind of goosebumps. There are two. Uh, one is the shudder. Oh, that's horrifying. The other are these little chills, uh, these little uh, sort of phosphorescent chills that move up your body. And those are really a specific kind of chills that accompanies awe. Um, the awe deactivates the default mode network in your brain. And that part of your brain, it's big chunks of your prefrontal cortex and the cortex on your side of your brain that are about ego and self and striving and task-drivenness. Awe quiets that nagging voice of the ego down. And then really importantly, uh, awe quiets the inflammation response in your body. Mm. Um, your immune system has these special cells 
uh, that are part of this part of this cytokine response. There are cells that attack pathogens that make you feel like you have the flu. Uh, when those inflammation processes are always active, it's very hard on your body. It is a pathway to heart disease, autoimmune disease, and the like. Awe cools the body. So it's this amazing profile uh, of, of the body uh, in awe, or what Walt Whitman called uh, the soul of the body, hmm. uh, or the body of the soul. And, and awe is very good for us physiologically. Yeah. Can you spend maybe just a, a little bit more time talking about the vagus nerve? Because I feel yeah. that this is suddenly becoming um, a term that, <laughs> that, you know, we're becoming a little more familiar with, yeah. you know, and um, like, wh why, what really is it? Why is it so important? Maybe just go a little further into it. Yeah, it it's, it's profoundly important. You know, um, you, there are several different systems of your body, the central nervous system, your brain. The immune system, which is, you know, the killer T cells in this inflammation process. And then what's called the autonomic nervous system, which is a bunch of bundles of nerves that come out of your spinal cord that control the conditions of your body to help it do things. And for 40, 50 years, we studied fight or flight autonomic nervous system activity, heart rate, blood pressure, skin conductance, the sweaty palms mm. that are about like fighting or fleeing and doing really demanding things. And that's just one part of your autonomic nervous system. And there's this bundle of nerves that is also part of that system called the vagus nerve. It starts at the top of your spinal cord, wanders into your throat, projects into facial muscles, moves down. And if you look at an image of it, it's this complex, multifaceted, multi-pronged, set of nerves moving through your chest and your gut and your body, slows your heart rate, deepens breathing, regulates digestion. And it, it's interesting, Jonathan, for a long time, the field said there's fight or flight. Oh, yeah, there's the vagus nerve. It's really about just resting and digesting. And along came Steve Porges and he said, you know, mammals have vagus nerves. Mammals take care of, of um, other beings around them. They play, they're social. The vagus nerve is the neurophysiological supporter of caring and love and social engagement. And when it was kind of a heretical hypothesis, and indeed that hypothesis has stood the test of time. When we feel compassion, the vagus nerve is activated. When we share and when we feel awe, it's activated and it gives you this feeling of openness, calming, uh, tearing up is a kind of a, a parasympathetic or vagus, tone, vagus nerve type response. It's all about moving out of the self physiologically and connecting and supporting other people, mm. supported through physiological sh system shaped by a, a long time of evolution. Yeah, no, thank you. That, that That's a great description of it. And I I, I know this is even simpler, but I, just the, the <laughs> idea that, that I mean, you get the chills. That's the phrase we use. Oh, yeah. I got the chills when, yeah. I, when I saw the Serengeti or when I heard the music or I saw the person help the child. I mean, that's... It's it's kind of like a strange physiological response. Like, why do we get the chills? But it, it doesn't feel bad. It feels kind of nice. It, it's a very unique feeling, the chills, isn't it? It's kind of a strange it's, one. It's so, you know, and I, and I have to note this very striking quality of the chills mm. is when people tell their stories of the chills, other people get the chills. Uh -huh. Okay, it's passed <laughs> and I on. Just, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, I just got a little bit of chills response when you talked about the Serengeti. Yeah, um, yeah you know, for a long time, people have noticed that when they're moved and astonished, uh, they get the chills, right? Um, it's very common in spiritual writing. Yes. That you get the chills. You get this bodily sensation in yoga that is a, a spiritual experience. Uh, writers have often written about, uh, like Charles Dickens, that the most important thing that literature can do is bring the chills to people. Hmm. We get the chills with music. And really careful research has actually broken the chills down into two different physiological processes. One is the shaking and the shuddering of when we encounter horror, Yeah, right? The shudder, the cold, alienated shudder of seeing the piles of bodies outside of 
Auschwitz, right? And you're just like, oh my God, humans are horrifying. The other kind of chills is radically different. It's a whole different physiological system, which is little contractions of muscles around hair follicles that move up your back, up your arms, into your scalp. And that is the chills associated with awe. And current thinking suggests that a lot of social mammals, like our primate relatives, a lot of monkey species, social, social, other social, rod social rodents like rats, what happens is they tend to fluff up their fur when they face threat together, mm. right? And what the initial process is, is you pyloerect, you fluff up your fur, tightens the skin, you protect your skin from cold, and you huddle, you get close together. That's the kind of chills that's a part of awe. If you don't have that option and you're alone, you then turn to more vigorous muscle contractions or the shudder associated with horror. So it's fascinating that the chills of awe, this leaning into other people, feeling close to others as you contemplate mysteries, traces back in mammalian evolution. Um, and you know, one of the stirring quotes in writing this book was to get, and I owe Franz Duval, the great primatologist who got me to this, yes. he said, you know, Jane Goodall wrote about this and she observed uh, the chimpanzees showing this fluffing up of the fur and, and when they looked at roaring rivers and waterfalls. And she said, you know, this is really, this is primate awe and the beginnings of primate spirituality. Hmm. When we get amazed by things bigger than ourselves and want to lean in with others. That's kind of incredible. So the idea being that this isn't just an experience specific to kind of modern humans. I mean, this is something that was observed in primates that could be thousands and thousands of years old. And I, that it's kind of profound, actually, when I sit with that. Well, and it tells us, you know, when we try to understand the essence of awe, that part of the essence of awe, if you take this chill story to its, to its conclusion, is like, wow, a lot of social mammals, rats and different monkeys, and our great ape relatives so close to us genetically, they, they huddle together, they touch each other, they lean into each other to encounter threats like cold. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how they survive. And we do that as humans. It's a basic primary, primordial structure of all of leaning in, forming a tribe when we encounter vast mysteries and sharing warmth or culture and togetherness, to use your phrase, to survive. And I think that's where awe really emerged out of in its mammalian story. Mm. And so often we think of the term being wrapped up, I think in particularly spiritual or religious terms, and it's hard kind of not to think about it there too. Yeah. Um, and I think spirituality and religion in, in the best sense, right? In the sense of, of wonder and of awe and of, of unknowingness and of um, a certain wordlessness that comes over what we think of as mm. like, you know, divine mm. properties or beings. Um, I, this must have come up a bit in the book, I'd imagine. Oh, and you, I love your description of it, Jonathan, the, the wordlessness and, you know, the idea of divine beings. And, you know, Jonathan, it was interesting writing on, we did this research, there are eight wonders that bring us awe. You know, I now recite them. It's kind of embarrassing, but, you know, moral beauty, collective effervescence, um, nature, art, music, spirituality, life and death and big ideas. Some of them I don't know a lot about, you know, and one of them is spirituality. And, and in, in really investigating it, it was humbling because uh, I became more open to it. You know, awe is central to the spiritual in inclination. It is found in all of the great religious traditions, the indigenous contemplative traditions that people like Dr. Urias Salidwin are writing about of just mystical encounters with spirit and divine and animating life forces. 41% of Americans encounter the divine, what is life animating in nature, like Ralph Waldo Emerson did. And I was so grateful that the science and then my brother's loss, which left me, you know, totally unmoored, I went into like, well, what is the sense of divine? What is sacred and beyond transactional value? What, what do I think spirit is? Because I felt it all around me when he left. 
Um, and, and I hope this book, Awe, and I, I feel this in teaching it, it allows us to have a broader conversation for everybody. Like, what do you think the divine is? What is spirit to you? Because most people feel it and they, they come to it, as William James argued in his Varieties of Religious Experience, right? Radical book. At, like Emerson, like uh, many others, we come to the divine through awe, through mm. our feelings. And it's a great question for our listeners. Like, how does awe get them to a sense of what's sacred? Yeah. And it, just having this conversation with you and thinking about this in the greater context, it, it occurs to me just kind of what a, you know, like what an apolitical conversation this is or what a exactly. cross-cultural conversation this is. Like yep. this to me is one of the subjects that feels deeply inclusive of just like humankind. Like who's against this? <laughs> you know what I mean? And in that sense, it's it's important in that that we can share this because it, sometimes it feels like, well, what really do we share anymore anyway? Yeah, you know, I agree. And, and it was striking, you know, when I used to, and spirituality is a good, place to think about this, you know, when I used to teach um, uh, spirituality for 20 years, just in my classes, like the science of spirituality, uh, I'd always get a lot of blowback. You know, I would, people who are really religious felt like I was treading on sacred territory in inappropriate ways. People who are atheists found it offensive. But when I teach it through awe, like humans have this feeling of, of spirit. And beyond what they understand about the metaphysics of life, they are, and we have to embrace that and explore that. Awe became this non-polarized way to talk about it. And that's what, it was one of the real motivations for writing this book is maybe this common experience of awe can return us to some of these shared qualities, like the moral beauty of other people, mm -hmm. that everybody has this kindness in them, like the reverence we should feel for nature, right? That that it, it, it changes the tenor of the conversations when we talk about it in terms of this shared human experience of all. Hmm. One recent guest, well, he, he's on the show, uh, he's been on a handful of times, is Pico Iyer, who I'm sure you're yeah. familiar with. And yeah. his book that's just coming out is, I love the title, it's called um, The Half-Known Life. Um, I believe I'll have to double check that. But, and the idea is, you know, he's out traveling the world in places like Iran and many other places, and that there is an aspect to the human condition, which I think could be awe, it could be spirituality yeah. or religion, that there's a sense of it being half known because it's beyond words or expression oftentimes. And yeah. I, I yeah. love the way he put that because when he said that, I began to be like, yeah, I mean, so much of who we are and the way we live and, and the experiences that matter most to us do have that kind of wordless quality, which, yeah. and I think you're kind of talking about the same thing here. You know, it, I mean, it was so challenging to write, you know, here I am a scientist and I'm taking on this, you know, the mystery, the mysterious emotion, you know, Einstein, all mystery is the fundamental emotion. Awe is the fundamental emotion. And, you know, how do I do this with, um, language and data and figures. And I, and I felt like I was failing uh, because it is this, this emotion, this most human of emotions, awe, is fundamentally beyond rational discourse and, and words, but I have to communicate in that way. So what do I do? And, and what I did was I talked to a lot of people to write this book, mm. from prisoners to, you know, veterans to musicians. And, and I'll just tell you two of my favorite uh, yes. observations, um, you know, that uh, speak to being beyond words, that we need metaphors and images to capture this. Um, one was, you know, Yumi Kendall, a musician who talked about awe when she plays the cello, producing a cashmere blanket of sound. Hmm. And that phrase to try to understand how music can transport us in time and make us cry and tell us who we are through patterns of vibrations of air particles in sound waves, that got it, right? Cashmere blanket of sound, it embraces us, it touches our skin. And I was like, okay, you know, science can't get to this, but that metaphor can tell us how awe is found in music. And then I talked to Reverend Jennifer 
Bailey, and she talked about awe in spirituality really being about the composting of ideas about the divine, that we're, we're always being moved by new ideas. They settle, they decompose, they grow new things, they become new forms. Uh, and I was like, wow, what a great metaphor for how we, as a culture, as a complex pluralistic culture, can grapple with what it means to have the spirit, right? Yeah. So yeah, it was really challenging to get be, to get to something that's beyond words with words, <laughs> and, <laughs> and metaphors were key. And I wish we had, I could have, you know, included music and visual imagery and the like, because that was part of the story too. And if you're just joining us, my guest is Dacher Keltner, a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and we're discussing his new book, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. We'll be back with part two of the conversation after this break. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. My guest this hour is Dacher Keltner, Berkeley psychologist and author of Awe, The New Signs of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Let's now dive into part two of the conversation, where we talk about the connection between awe and grief. And you also said you spoke to some some folks I, that surprised me, like like prisoners, for example, or people that are in walks of life that we may not associate with, you know, feelings of awe. Can you can you say more about that? Thank you, Jonathan. You know, when my brother was my moral compass, he he was younger. My brother Rolf Keltner, and uh, he just you know he directed me in how to be a human being. I was kind of an uptight, grouchy, selfish guy. And, you know, he really showed me the way. And when he died, um, I was really lacking a compass and um, in so many ways, not in any eth- problematic ways, but just, what you know. And I found myself, and this is what awe does, because his, his passing just opened my mind up to metaphysical mysteries, but also personal mysteries, like who will inspire me um, in my life? And I always ask people, you know, when they encounter this idea of moral beauty, the people who have kindness and courage and overcoming obstacles that inspire you, you know, for Reverend Jennifer Bailey was her grandmother's in the African-American tradition. I was lacking my, my moral beauty and I just started to sense it and one place I found it for various reasons was doing restorative justice work in San Quentin. I'd spend day, you know, whole days in there, you know, 180 guys with me, men in blue, and their stories blew me off the map. You know, just how uh, how hard their lives had been. They'd made mistakes, and they were seeking to redeem themselves or what William James called redeem what is really wild in the universe, redeem the goodness in us. And they were doing it in ways I hadn't seen ever, you know, certainly not in my, you know, faculty meetings or academic life. I mean, they were going after the soul and it blew me off the map. You know, it just was like, these guys are trying to find spirit again. And I think, you know, the, in writing this book, I challenged a reader like, who are your sources of moral beauty? And you may find it in in places that you don't ordinarily frequent, right? To mm. to go after that. And and those prisoners, Lewis Scott, you know, and Big Mike and others, they uh they and Mo, you know, who's just gotten out, and Simon Liu, who's now running the Bay Area Freedom Collective that I'm helping out with, those guys move me to try to be good in the world mm. through awe. And it seems, you know, as I sit with your story, which I I think is really, really moving, is that awe must have been appearing there in so many ways. You know, the way that you saw these redeemable qualities in these people that we have kind of thrown away, the struggle that and the beauty they find in still living a full life and exploring ideas in the way that we do too. I mean, it, the richness in there of awe seems to be so multifaceted. I, you know... And your description just gave me goosebumps, so forgive me. But, you know, the 
you know, when you when you go in prison and I spent, you know, dozens of hours just, you know, being humbled by it, you know, you are struck by the brutality of inside um, and you are struck by the brutality of what children are exposed to in many of the lives, the traumas they face, and then the spirit that they seek the divine, they seek to be good, they want young kids to live good lives. They, it's, it's remarkable uh, and, and was an epiphany for me. I remember uh, be, and, and a lot of people go in feel like this is the most interesting experience of the human condition I've ever had, you know? And I remember one of the central themes of the book is everyday awe, right? It's all around us if we just think about it for a bit and go after it. And when I asked uh, my first time inside San Quentin, 180 guys looking at me, here I am, this white guy of privilege, you know, and I had to ask them, you know, what brings them awe inside? Such a hard life. The food is crap. You know, they don't get to see their loved ones. It's harsh. It is brutal. And the answers they gave me blew me away. You know, it was, it was, you know, reading the Bible, the air, getting to exercise, my celly, reading the Quran, you know, visiting my grandchildren, seeing my grandchildren, mm. breathing, getting my high school diploma. I was right. like, wow, yeah. this is everywhere, you know, uh, a chance for us all to redeem what is good. What a powerful lesson for us on the outside that experience. Well, if you're lucky, that experience what can feel like a limitless freedom and opportunity and how we, not everyone, but mm. how that is not always a recipe for happiness in human life. And yet, when you describe these really harsh limitations on one's life, and yet there's still, you know, there's light coming in of wonder and beauty. I mean, what, what a lesson that is to learn. And I know the story that is so central here for you, and you've referenced it a few times, was the loss of your brother, right? One in which you would think, how can there be any awe out of that? How can there be any any beauty or wonder or divinity out of the loss of, you know, somebody who's meant so much to you? So may, maybe you can say a little bit more about that if you could. Yeah, and thanks, Jonathan, and you've always been so gracious and open to this, you know, um, in our last conversation too. Yeah, you know, he was my companion in awe, and that's in the book of our unusual childhood and wandering together and doing all kinds of, you know, awe-inspiring things, swimming in rivers and backpacking and living wildly and, you know, being um, best men in each other's weddings. And and then he died and, and, you know, trauma and loss has this chaotic, uh, heated up quality to it of you can't make sense of things. Um, and it, it moved me to in profound grief, the kind of grief yeah. that Joan Didion writes about of like, I, I didn't know it was real and not real. I could barely function. You know, I wasn't sleeping. Um, and in many ways, my experience of grief that I write about was hard for me to understand, but it pointed me in the direction of like, uh, I would go to the mountains that he and I backpack in and feel him there. And I heard his voice in the wind, you know, saying, I'm around. And I remember uh, it was an astonishing experience where I'm like lost in grief. And I'm like, I got to go circle around Mont Blanc hmm. um, for various reasons, you know, and I, as we drive in to get ready for it, I see these aspen, these leaves flicker mm, in the beautiful. wind. Yep. And he and I had just seen that in our last trip to the mountains together. And then the group we're with, this woman comes up and says, are you Rolf Keltner's brother? <laughs> <laughs> wow. She was his co-teacher in a small school oh my in, gosh, yeah. in Nevada City. And I was like, and what I learned is he's with me, you know, mm. that... When we lose people, they're with, they always are with us. They're in our cells. I had to make sense of that. And so what the grief and awe brought me to is a new view of life and our minds that the people we lose, um, somehow we're always with them. And that uh, came to me in a lot of different ways and, and changed my understanding of the world. Mm. 
And I might just share a quick story because I think it, it would only bring us closer yeah. together in yeah. this conversation. I, my mother died eight years mm. ago of ovarian cancer. Um, mm. She died in her late 50s. And, oh you know, it was, as anyone who's lost a mother or father or brother knows, the, the, the grief, as you say, is just monumental. And, and what I experienced, I think, was some intuitive calling that I think maybe you are expressing too. And, and I, I don't know why this happened, but after the death... I just thought, I need to get out of here for a while. And the place that came to me is, I don't know why, but I need to go to East Africa. I need to be out on big plains and be with the sun. And I need to walk through the Great Rift Valley and just reconnect to something that is much bigger than I think is kind of this, at times, the very small, closed-in feeling of grief. You know what I mean? You're you're suddenly, your life feels diminished in the loss and you can't quite get out of it where I, my experience with being out in that type of environment and which is what I think I was craving was the ability to kind of finally look up at the sky again or at the sun or at the moon and just kind of put Mm -hmm. my feet in front of one another and walk. And to me, that always opened up these big questions of this interrelation between grief and awe. So is it just me? But I feel like we're kind of expressing something very similar here. I think, uh, and I, you know, I'm sorry about the loss of your mom. And boy, when you lose people early, like you did and I did, it, it, you, bec- you are part of this universal human experience. Yeah, you know, um, I think that what we seek is a resituating ourselves in what we think of as life. Um, and we find that in place, uh, be it planes or looking at stars or sky or forms of music, which are about home and place and, um, and then for me, mountains. And, and it, you know, and then along come these shifting ideas. And I'd be curious for you, Jonathan, did it change your understanding of life? Mm. Well, I think in the way that you expressed this feeling that your brother was still with you, I think the the longer I was out there back in a place in which uh, feels timeless in a sense, and the cycle of life is so close to you out there, and that um, you see life and death all around you, and again, I think you're brought back into some kind of primordial rhythm of what's going on. I mean, I don't know what else to say, that one, or at least in my case, I only felt closer to the presence of my mother. And that, I think, was what I walked away with, was, again, a a reconnection with her versus, I think, a sense of one being very distanced from the person. And I think, you know, when you head into grief, and I, I think part of the lesson from our shared stories is to follow the awe and mystery of losing people we love, mm. follow it openly. And it often will lead people to nature or places that have these themes in them of, you know, that is beyond the narrow view of just losing a person and, and broadening to, well, what is life? Yeah. And what I came to is like, wow, life ends and then it rebo- is reborn yes. and then it goes in this cycle. And I kept seeing that. And then what is the person I lost? Who is that person? And yeah, there was a time, there was one moment where I felt my brother's hand on my back. He had big hands. Mm. And I was like, wow, you know, I feel that physically in my, the cells of my skin. He's here, you know. And of course, he's not here physically, but he is here psychologically, spiritually. And it, it changed my view. And so I hope, you know, Grief is a human universal. The panic you feel of that immediacy of losing a single person is very real. But there is this opening to new understanding that um, I think you're traveling the plains probably got you to. And I'm still trying to find and heading out into the mountains that my brother and I love so. Yeah. And I remember, you know, outside of my work on the radio, I I remember I spent a year doing grief counseling at Hospice Mm. of Santa Barbara. And... um, in my training to become a psychotherapist. And what was interesting, just sitting with people in immense, immense grief, was that there was an inclination for them too. And again, I, I, I swear this is happening on not on a rational level, like, oh, I need to go find awe and be in the mouth. It just kind of happens, you know, that I would see 
people in really deep grief just do it in their own way. They'd say, yep. I'm just going to go to the beach because that's where I used to share these memories with a person I lost. Or there's this one cave by the water I like to sit in and listen to the tide come in and out. And again, it, it wasn't I get this this thing of saying, I, I think this is what I need. It's like, you just go and do it. You're being pulled there, in a sense, to these experiences. And I, I, I just began to notice it all around me, and I found this is kind of interesting, you know? I And, and you know, it, we... And part of the struggle I had was we we hide from grief, we medicalize death, you know, we don't have the rituals that other cultures have, et cetera. Yes. We now know this. So what do you do? You know, and for me, what I did, just like you you observed, Jonathan, as I said, follow awe and follow the sense of mystery where it takes you. And it took me in a lot of surprising places. Um, and and this I think you know, coming out of the pandemic and the sense of of what young people have lost from two or three years um, is to use this as a guide. Like, well, where do you find mystery? Where, what are you wondering about? What brings you chills right now? Uh, and go after that. You know, don't rely on on prescriptions from the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I had no choice with the loss of my brother because I, I didn't come out of a religious family to guide me. Uh, with all of its rituals and and notions and it, it it led me like you to the plains it led me to some some uh i think some growth yeah some, some new understanding part of your book also looks at how experiences with awe can also help with other mental disorders i mean depression anxiety um ptsd I, i'll let you take it from here but yeah this this could be a powerful tool it sounds like for for other really important things that can ail us yeah, you know, I, um, in my work, but then in particular in the context of this loss, um, and just work more generally working in the prisons. And then um, I started a, a, a collaboration uh, with some veterans led by Stacy Bear. And veterans have twice the rate of, of stress and depression, anxiety, PTSD. Uh, they just call it PTS, post-traumatic stress, because <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, they have seen things and done things that are, you know, really hard for the mind to grasp and grapple with. And being around them, uh, what we, Stacy Bear and I felt was a lot of people who really are in the front lines of trauma are awe-deprived. They... Oh. They, veterans off, you know, people go into the services to be courageous and to assist. And then they, they get blown off the map by the traumas of being in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, so we, we did research, getting them out river rafting, you know, and it benefited 30% drop in PTSD, you know. Um, in the healthcare setting, come in the pandemic, they are seeing similar kinds of trauma, right? Of watching people die in plastic bags and being working 12 hours a day and understaffed and 30% drop in nurses there. Our, our healthcare providers have been traumatized by the pandemic. And watching these awe stories, and we actually did some research showing practicing a little awe led to reductions in depression and anxiety for healthcare providers during COVID. Hmm. So awe gives us this frame for like gaining perspective on trauma, uh, feeling part of a community, benefits to our bodies that we've described. I think it's a I think it's going to be a a small next frontier in how we think about handling the struggles of our day. Yeah, because what could be more different than almost the words awe and depression? You, you know we think of clinical depression as really almost just like tunneling into oneself. I mean, a depression, a a dropping down, Mm -hmm. a falling into. And what is the opposite of that in a sense? It's kind of emerging out of something into a place of awe or openness. They they almost appear as just these two kind of beautiful and wild foils of each other. Does that make sense? I mean, I had never thought about that. And that makes profound sense that when I felt the panic 
of losing my brother and I'd wake up gasping and having an anxiety attack and my inflammation response was just scorching hot. It was this tunneling and this narrowing and this, the mind was zeroing in on this existential truth that right. he was gone. And awe just opened up. It opened my mind, right? And I think that contrast or juxtaposition of the heat of depression and panic is that the narrowing of the mind on t into the these hard truths. We we die. Mm -hmm. People we love die. Uh, my body fails, and awe embraces. It opens us up and says, "You know what? That's okay. You know, it's part of this big story that we're here to try to figure out." Mm. I love the connection, and I wish I'd drawn it earlier. <laughs> Thank you. Oh no, I, I it's it's I love this stuff. And do you think awe is something? kind of like a muscle that we can learn to practice, we can learn to let a little bit more of it in once we begin to notice it around us? There's this misconception uh, that awe is rare and you feel it a couple times a week. Yeah. That awe takes a lot of money. No, just open your eyes to some kindness, you know, think about, you know, a tree or the sky or the clouds, you know, move with other people, listen to some great music. Um, and then there's this, this uh, um, misconception of awe that it's like this mystical thing that's out of our control, mm -hmm. right? And it just happens to us. And then you're St. Paul on the road to Damascus. You collapse and you have this transformation. Yeah. But in point of fact, it's, it's a practice. You know, uh, we did a study that had people do what we call an awe walk once a week for eight weeks. They go out. They try to approach a new place like a child with wonder. And, you know, one view would be that as you do this in an expected way, a predictable way, the awe diminishes, mm. you lose it. Just the opposite happened. People start to feel more and more awe over the experiment. So I, um, I think it's an important lesson of this book is that there's everyday awe. And it's a, it's a practice. You can just go find it and build. Mm. It's such a pleasure to be joined by Dacher Keltner, UC Berkeley psychologist, faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center, and author of Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Dacher, I, I, just, I feel lucky we get to have these conversations, and they always take us in some wonderful places. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining me once again. Man, I was in East Africa with you, Jonathan. So, <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for the kind of conversations that you enable. And, and uh, it's, I will always, with delight and awe, uh, be in conversation with you. Thanks, Jonathan. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody, and we hope you enjoyed this discussion of awe as much as I did. And we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page. How has awe impacted your life? You can find the link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.